Welcome back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here once again with another China History Podcast episode, number 222, part five in our, well, I guess you could now call it a long-running series on the history of Tang poetry. If you lasted through the last four installments, thanks for sticking with the program. You know, I had my doubts about this topic since most people I know don't give a hoot about poetry or any world lit for that matter. But strong showing so far with all four parts of the series. And I got that leap by bump last time in part four. But as you can tell, this series is pretty long on the history side of things, and I'm sparing you all the jargon and technical aspects of poetry. And if you're already a lover of Chinese poetry and very familiar with this subject. I hope you don't find this too jejun. Let's face it, in Chinese poetry, there's Li Bai, Du Fu, and everyone else. No sense beating around the bush. And like I said last time, many will say Li Bai was the greatest, and others will declare no one topped Du Fu. And it was a Stones and Beatles thing. Both produced great work, but depending how you liked your poetry, Li Bai satisfied some, and others. Last episode, we looked at Li Bai's life and read a few of his poems. I think if you never knew anything about him before, now at least you know he was a romantic and a Taoist who loved to wander 8th century China and get boozed up all the time and enjoy life to the fullest. He eschewed the traditional path aspired by most educated young men, a career as a civil servant, just as a pirate's life wasn't for everybody, so it was with Li Bai and the Tang bureaucracy. He preferred to wander from place to place around China, stay for a while here and there. And Li Bai was famous in his own time. And, well, this isn't documented or anything, but I bet he never had to pick up the check at any wine house he drank at. Du Fu, nah, he didn't have it as good as Li Bai. In this episode, I wanted to introduce his life to you. I think I would have rather been Li Bai, even though it meant sacrificing my liver and probably having many a rough morning after. Du Fu, he had it rough. Well, let's look at his life. He's called the Shi Shi and the Shi Sheng, the poet historian and the poet sage. Poet historian, because one thing Du Fu was famous for was how he chronicled the tumultuous times he lived in through his poetry. And Du Fu's observations and how he communicated the extent of the misery through his poems worked hand-in-hand with historical documents and other histories of the times to add some color and texture to the overall picture of mid-8th century China. Like Li Bai, Du Fu moved around a lot, though not as much. But he spent a lot of time in the two most important cities of Tang Dynasty China, Chang'an and Luoyang, the two capitals. As a civil servant, at least for a while, he had a job that gave him access to the emperor. His world, for a short time anyway, orbited the top royals of the Tang court. But unlike Li Bai, who could take it or leave it as far as a career in the civil service, even at the imperial court, Du Fu really wanted it. He came from a long line of bureaucrats. I mean, nothing fancy or renowned, but for most, all he had to do was get in the door, become part of the system. 
Yeah, Li Bai. Some call the Taoist poet. And Du Fu, he's the Confucian poet. In the Song, they lionized him for his Confucian morality and his devotion to the Tang royal house. Du Fu lived 712 to 770. Tang emperors Zong to Daizong. Most accounts say he came from present-day Gongyi, midway between Luoyang and Zhengzhou, in ancient and historic Henan province. In his youth, he took to wandering. This was between 731 and 735. And he took in the sites in Jiangsu and Zhejiang. Very little is known about this period in his life, except that in 735, he headed to Chang'an to go sit for the Jinshir exam. Now, despite poetry being integral to the whole exam, not to mention coming from such a long line of officials who had all passed, Du Fu failed in his first attempt. So from 736 to 740, Du Fu hit the road again and wandered all around Shandong and Hebei provinces before heading to Luoyang the following year. And as I mentioned last episode, in those two fateful years of 744 and 745, Du Fu and Li Bai's paths crossed, and they became fast friends. And although they will never meet again in their lifetimes, they kept up a famous correspondence, always communicating with each other through poetry. That was the the Tang way to do it. In 746, Du Fu went back to Chang'an to try his luck again in the civil service exams. The good emperor Xuanzong had called for a special sitting of the civil service exams and was most anxious to recruit some new blood into the system. Du Fu got on the list of candidates, but it wasn't meant to be, regardless of how well each candidate might have performed on the test, it was rigged from the start, and Xuanzong's chancellor, Li Linfu, weary of any young whippersnappers possibly moving in on his turf, made sure not a single person passed the Jinshir exam. And once again, Du Fu's hopes were dashed, two times unlucky, and he was already 34 years old. Du Fu, he lingered in Chang'an for a while after that. His first son was born in 750, then another in 753. Two years after that, in December 755, the Anlu Shan Rebellion started. Now, you've heard me mention this a bunch of times, and the subject has been covered in past CHP episodes, in other History of China podcasts, and even Melvin Bragg, my hero, even he covered the Anlu Shan Rebellion in an old In Our Time episode, so no need to get into the details, except to say it was a disaster for everyone, from the emperor on down to the peasants trying to stay out of harm's way. And poor old Dufu and his family, they all got sucked into the vortex of the whole thing. I didn't mention Dufu did pass the civil service exam finally, but as soon as he got his first modest posting somewhere. Well, that's when everything fell to pieces in North China. So Du Fu, like a lot of people, had to put his dreams on hold and make sure he and his family didn't meet an early demise. He led them to Fuzhou, not the one in Fujian. This is Fuzhou. It would be in today's northern Shanxi province, just south of historic Yan'an. And in one of the defining acts 
of Dufu's life. After he had his wife and kids safe, he headed back towards the direction of Chang'an to offer whatever aid he could to the Tang Emperor. By 756, with Luoyang already plundered and Chang'an under siege, Emperor Xuanzong, the good old days now just a distant memory, fled the scene. And we all know, fleeing together with the emperor was his favorite concubine, Yang Guifei, and her cousin, Yang Guozhong. And everyone who worked for the emperor closely or from a distance blamed those two for this historic reversal of fortune. So that whole thing played out, that tragic ending for this once great emperor whose era defined the Tang Dynasty's most glorious decades. Everything fell apart for him. Yang Guifei met her end, and now Xuanzong's son, Su Zong, he's now sitting on a very uneasy throne in exile, just west of the capital in Fengxiang, and was in the direction of Fengxiang that Du Fu set out. And later Confucianists are going to heap praise on Du Fu for taking care of his family and facing a premature ending in his determination to offer his assistance to the emperor. Except he didn't make it. He ended up getting captured by the Anlushan rebels and detained in Chang'an for four months. Both Luoyang and Chang'an had by then fallen to the rebels. Anyway, who knew amongst these rebels that they were holding in captivity the greatest poet in all of Chinese history? Du Fu managed to sneak away and made his way to Fengxiang to join up with the Suzong Emperor's retinue. Now, somewhere along the way, after hooking up with them, Du Fu did something to make the Emperor unhappy, so he had to make himself scarce. He went north to Fuzhou to check in with his family, and then he made his way back to Chang'an, which by 758 was back in Tang hands. And du Fu wound up getting a small appointment, and his unspectacular career as a Chinese civil servant took another left turn, and he was sent away to serve in a city east of Chang'an. History has proven that famine and rebellion often go hand in hand, and one of the consequences of the Anlushan Rebellion was the disruption to agriculture. Add to this some bad weather, and you know the rest. And to get away from all this, Du Fu picked up and started heading to the west, towards Gansu province. This is around 759. He stayed for a while and then made his way south to Chengdu. And here in Chengdu, Du Fu caught a breather and had some of the happiest years of his life. And like his friend Li Bai, Du Fu, wherever he went, was always composing poetry. And he didn't just remember these poems in his head. He wrote them down and stored them in scroll form in some sort of box or trunk or, you know, whatever. And he had to transport them wherever he went. That was his thumb drive. And when you read Du Fu's poems in the context of the historical timeline, like I said, he added a lot of imagery to these names, dates, and places. That's why every book of his poetry... Somewhere in the intro, you'll see those two words, Shi Shi, the poet historian. Anyone familiar with Chengdu or whoever has been there as a tourist surely paid their respects at the Du Fu Cao Tang. There, 
Du Fu built his famous thatched hut and spent four happy years there. He wrote some of his best material, and Chengdu was far enough away from the Anlushan Rebellion. He figured he could sleep a little easier. But wishful thinking on Du Fu's part, by 762 the rebels made their way down to Sichuan province and Du Fu had to cut and run. By 764, everything had quieted down and he was back in his thatched hut, writing poems and working another government job of no great importance. 765, Du Fu resigned his post and sailed down the Yangtze, stopping in a place called Kuizhou, today part of the municipality of Chongqing. Li Bai had passed through there in 756. Du Fu must have liked Kuizhou because he stayed for a couple of years, departing in 768 in the direction of Hunan province. He stayed around Dongting Lake, the body of water that acts as the dividing point between Hunan and Hubei. And I hate to say it, but that was pretty much the end of Du Fu. He was planning to make another visit to the capital, Chang'an, but he passed away in 770, not very far from present-day Changsha in Hunan. He could visit his tomb in Pingjiang County, about 90 minutes from downtown Changsha. His whole life, Du Fu was never a healthy man. He suffered from lung ailments, believed to be asthma. He was diabetic. He was deaf in one ear. And his eyesight wasn't that great either. And in introducing his life story, I'm sure you can all tell, except for a few moments of respite here and there, he lived a very stressful life, witnessing the end of the Kaiyuan era and the devastation of the Anlushan Rebellion. His life straddled the best and worst years of the Tang. One thing the scholars say about Du Fu that they don't say about Li Bai and others is that he was very, very difficult to translate from classical Chinese to a foreign language. I mentioned in part one about Chinese characters having multiple meanings, and a character that means something today often had these archaic usages. There are all kinds of subtleties that are lost when translating from the original Chinese to any language. Some translators of Du Fu in English are more famous and respected than others, but it's pretty much impossible to say one translation is the closest to what the poet actually meant. One must constantly refer to the footnotes when reading Du Fu in translation. But many of the great ones, perhaps Stephen Owen, chief among them, have been given the nod by their peers as having captured the essence of Du Fu's poems and translated them faithfully and accurately. Stephen Owen's Six-volume magnum opus on the complete works of Du Fu is the go-to source for aficionados of Du Fu's poetry in English translation. David Hawkes, A Little Primer of Du Fu, is also a good one. I have a link to those books in the show notes. And even though it isn't the same as reading Du Fu in the original Chinese, Du Fu satisfies. And he's beloved all over the world, not just in his native land. About two-thirds of Du Fu's poems are Liu Shi regulated verse poems, eight lines, five or seven characters per line. 
likely by he wasn't so much an innovator or discoverer of something new. He just took the existing rules of poetry and brought them to extraordinary heights that all people agreed, even in Dufu's lifetime, were quite special. All the accolades, appreciation, and recognition for Dufu began years after his passing in the Tang, but he really gained immortality thanks to the early anthologies of Du Fu's work that appeared in the Northern Song Dynasty, along with the growth in Neo-Confucianism and how these Neo-Confucianists embraced Du Fu. He had quite a heyday in the Song. Even Wang Anshi, there's a big name for you when talking about the Northern Song, he too did a whole lot to fan the flames of Du Fu's popularity. Not to mention, he was also one of the many compilers of Dufu's poetry. And from that point forward, Dufu, the poet superstar, was born. And it's been Dufu and Li Bai ever since. Those two, always held up in the highest possible esteem. After Dufu passed, people began to appreciate him more. An early admirer was the great Tang statesman, Neo-Confucian pioneer, and prose writer extraordinaire Han Yu who pointed out Dufu's specialness. Han Yu lived during the Middle Tang period. And amongst the Tang Shi, San Bai Shou, the 300 Tang poems, one of the definitive collections of Tang poetry that came out during Qianlong's time in the Qing, Dufu has the most poems, a whopping 39, 13% of the collection. Li Bai was in second place with 34, and Wang Wei, who we'll look at next episode, 29. Between the three of them, 34%, over a third of the collection. James Hong, in his new book, Introduction to Tang Poetry, picked out several poems to get the feel for Du Fu. Let's read a few of them. Here's one he wrote, uh, thinking of his wife and family he stashed in Fuzhou in 755 when he was being held captive in the south in Chang'an for four months by the Anlushan rebels. It's called Tonight the Moon Shines Over Fuzhou. Yue Ye Jin Ye Fuzhou Yue Gui Zhong Jirdu Kan Yao Lian Xiao Ar Nu Wei Jie Yi Chang An Xiang Wu Yun Huan Shi Qing Hui Yu Bi Han He Shi Yi Xu Huang Shuang Zhao Lei Hen Gan Tonight the moon shines in Fuzhou. She watches alone in her chamber. I feel sorry for my boy and girl. They don't understand why she thinks of Chang'an. The fragrant mist moistens her dressed hair, her smooth arms cold in the clear moonlight. When can we lean by the lonely window and see the reflection of our drying tears? Here's another one called Spring View, Chun Wang. This one made it to the 300 Tang poems. It was written in 757 in Chang'an after the city was taken back from the rebels. Guo Po Shan He Zai Chang Chun Cao Mu Shen Gan Shi Hua Jian Lei Hen Bie 
Niao Jing Xin Feng Wo Lian San Yue Jia Shu Di Wan Jin Bai Tou Sao Gung Duan Hun Yu Bu Sheng Zan The country is broken, the mountains and hills remain. In the city, grass and trees grow dense. Moved by the moment, a flower is splashed with my tears. Morning parting, a bird startles my heart. The beacon fires have burned for three months now. Family letters are worth ten thousand pieces of gold. I scratch my head, its white hairs grow thinner, barely able to hold a hairpin. And this is one of his poems that's pretty self-explanatory. It's called Thinking of Li Bai at the End of the Sky. It was written in 759. The last two lines of the poem you might recognize. He's talking about Qu Yuan, who we discussed in part one. It's called Tian Mo Huai Li Bai, Liang Feng Qi Tian Mo, Jun Zi Yi Ru He, Hong Yan. A cold wind rises above the sky. What's on the gentleman's mind? When does the wild goose arrive? The rivers and lakes are full of autumn waters. The literature dislikes success. The demons rejoice at people's faults. Let's talk to the soul of the poet who has been wronged. Toss a poem into the Milo River as a gift. And here's another one of Du Fu's that made it to the 300 Tang poems. It's called Ascending Yueyang Tower. Yueyang is a city in Hunan located on the West Bank of Dongting Lake. Chairman Mao loved this poem. Well, maybe being from Hunan and all. Deng Yueyang Lou Xi Wen Dongting Shui Jing Shang Yueyang Lou Wu Chu Dongnan Che Qian Kun Ri Ye Fu Qin Peng Wu Yi Zi Lao Bing Yo Gu Zhou Rong Ma Guan Shan Bei Ping Xuan Ti Si Liu Of old I heard of the waters of Dongting Lake. Now I've climbed to the top of Yueyang Tower. Here Wu and Chu are split to east and west. Here heaven and earth are floating day and night. From family and friends comes not a single word. Old and sick, I have one solitary boat. War horses are riding north of the mountain pass. I lean on the railing as tears flow down. Du Fu, everybody. Arguably China's greatest poet, period. In his own lifetime, he wasn't praised like he is today. And after his passing, and especially so in the Song Dynasty, Du Fu got a nice... Once over, and pretty much ever since then, he's been considered 
the gold standard by which all Chinese poets are judged. And ever since then, he's had plenty of imitators, often imitated, but never duplicated. As the Song Dynasty unfolded, there came an avalanche of commentaries that analyzed every aspect of Du Fu's 1,400 or so poems. He was considered the king of regulated verse. I read a few of them for you. And as far as being included amongst all the grandest cultural treasures from the thousands of years of Chinese history, he's right up there with the best of them, with Li Bai right beside him. Okay, let's call it a day. We've got the big two out of the way. I wanted to run through some of the other most celebrated poets of the Tang Dynasty. I think we can knock this off in two or three more episodes. We'll see. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, still managing to come to you every two weeks with such consistency. You got something to say to me? I'm here for you 24-7, ladies and gentlemen, at laszlo at teacup.media. I'd love to hear from you. Come back for more of this stuff next time, if you feel so inclined, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.